court reporting is a bit like parenthood in that the greatest experts are the ones who don't do it. Most lawyers will say that when they read a report of a case that they're in, they tend to read halfway through the article before they recognise it as their case. Love the job. It's great. You've got intellectual discussion, there's grime, there's crime. There aren't a lot of jobs in journalism where stuff happens right in front of you all the time. Well, I'd banned Underbelly and it just seemed to blow the entire mind of the population. Decisions are made in the Supreme Court which can trigger outrage, while those same decisions leave others feeling empowered. They can engender trust in the justice system and make others question it. The vast majority of Victorians will never have any direct contact with the Supreme Court, but that doesn't stop most people having an opinion about it. Predominantly, these opinions are formed from the media. It's a fundamental principle of the common law that justice has to be done in an open court. Journalists, therefore, serve as the guardians of an open justice system. I'm Greg Muller. This is Gertie's Law. This episode is about the long and ever-changing relationship between the media and the court. From the outrage when a TV camera was first allowed into a courtroom 25 years ago to the ongoing discussion about suppression orders. And traditionally, journalists and judges have very little interaction, if any. In this episode, we'll hear from them both. And then in part two, we'll put eight of them in a room together and record it. Journalists covering this court serve two masters, and it can be a difficult balance to get right. Peter Gregory covered the courts for the Age newspaper between 1988 and 2010. He now teaches journalism and media law at La Trobe University. Peter puts it this way. There are different assumptions made by the law and by your employer when it comes to being a court reporter. So part of court reporting is, I guess, giving practical effect to open justice. So the way most people, it's said, see the legal system in action is by either reading or seeing or listening to court reports because they can't get there themselves. And from the viewpoint of your employer, most journalists work for commercial businesses, so they're looking for interesting stories for the public to read. So what do judges think about the way their cases are reported? Principal judge in the commercial court, Justice Reardon. Most lawyers will say that when they read a report of a case that they're in, they tend to read halfway through the article before they recognise it as their case. And there's no doubt, if you only listen to one party's side of the case, let's say the losing party, as you may have if you've ever listened to some friends describing to them what happened in court, it seems terribly unjust. And that's why we tend to listen to both sides of the story before we make a decision because we get very convinced by one party only to find, oh, my God, there's a completely different slant in it from the other party. Members of the public don't get that. So they tend to lead, that tends to lead to us being thought as, as, as out of touch because they say, well, these judges must be out of touch to make such stupid decisions as these. Yes, I'm Justice Kevin Bell. 
uh, of the Supreme Court of Victoria and I uh, sit in uh, all divisions of the court, including the Criminal Division and the Common Law Division. There seems to be a fair bit of animosity between media and the courts. Do you think there is, and if so, where do you think it comes from? I think there is uh, institutional tension uh, between the media and the courts. Why do I say institutional tension? It's because of the different roles uh, that the media and the courts discharge. The court's function is to conduct a fair and public hearing uh, in order to produce an impartial and just outcome. The institutional role of the media is to uh, publish what occurs in court. Those two objectives can rub up against each other, important as they both are. It's sometimes necessary for courts to make suppression orders or to uh, restrict the availability of information or make pseudonym orders uh, because it really is necessary in the interests of justice to do so, albeit for a short time after due notice has been given. Naturally, media organisations would prefer that that not occur, uh, and I think it's perfectly understandable that those tensions might exist. Court reporting is a bit like parenthood in that the greatest experts are the ones who don't do it. Peter Gregory again. And if you look on social media, which I have the misfortune to do from time to time, you'll find that there are people who uh, will discuss all sorts of things that reporters should do. And it always occurs to me that decisions, particularly in the Supreme Court, are up pretty quickly online. So if you really wanted to demonstrate how flawed court reporting is, you could always write your own story and and publish it as opposed to making helpful suggestions about, well, you missed this bit or you didn't say this and, and why didn't you do this and I'm outraged by it. If you look at the way people critique court reporting, now I, and I'm probably one of them now, where you know I, I would be critical of a, of stories which only say you know either soft judge, terrible sentence, you know evil monster committed crime. I mean, you, if you've if you're writing 15 paragraphs based on a whole day's evidence and submissions, it's pretty hard to get everything in but you can at least give people a reasonable view of what's gone on. I'm Karen Percy. I'm a journalist with the ABC. I've been doing court reporting on and off for four or five years. Love the job. It's great. You've got um, lots of interesting people around you. Um, there's you know, intellectual discussion, there's grime, there's crime. It's a really interesting job where stuff literally unfolds in front of you. You can be the only reporter sitting in a courtroom and suddenly a couple of terrorists decide to plead guilty to charges. So it's really great. There aren't a lot of jobs in journalism where stuff happens right in front of you all the time. How hard is it to go and squeeze what could be up to an hour or 45 minutes sentence into a two to three minute story? It's tough. At the ABC, I've got the added pressure of putting into a 30 second radio voicer. So you miss a lot of detail. But the beauty of the ABC too is that I have this multi-platform. So sure, I have to put it in a minute 50 television package and I've got the difficulties of what are the pictures I'm going to use for that. So that's a real mind spin at times. But I've also then usually got the ability to do a longer online piece where I can use um, some nice background, I can use some nice colour that you might have seen or witnessed in the court. And then there's that down and dirty 30 seconds, 35 seconds for radio. So it's tough tough to get your head across all of those but that's the beauty too is that you're actually serving a lot of audiences. Someone who spent a lot of time watching and writing about this court is award-winning novelist and journalist Helen Garner. 
Helen's written numerous books and feature articles set in this building. I think I actually became addicted to the place after a while. When I walk past it, I feel a tremendous uh, magnetism. <laughs> and I, I've spent probably some of the most interesting hours and years, really, of my working life in that building. And I learnt so much in there. I find it um, endlessly gripping and fascinating. And I never get bored there. I, I noticed when I used to go there a lot, you'd see people come in and uh, they bring in whole classes of kids and you'd see them come tiptoeing in and looking around with round eyes and I'd, al- I'd always watch them to see how long it would take till they, they start to get bored. And, uh, and with school kids it's usually about 20 minutes and they start to shift in their seat because I suppose they're expecting it to be like like on TV with judges banging gavels and, and which they, we don't have in this country. But just... There's a lot of talking in low voices in courts and that can be very dulling to the spirit, I think. But I, I got to the point where even that those parts didn't bore me. Even the boring bits, the bits that were objectively boring, I don't find boring because, I, because after you've been there long enough, you become aware of all the little subtexts that are going on underneath what's actually being said and and the movements of people, changes of position and, and uh, ripples of feeling that go through the jury and things like that. I was completely hooked on that and still am really. And I love the formality of the way the tip staff says at the beginning of the day, all persons having business before this honourable court. are commanded to give their attendance and they shall be heard. And you shall be heard. That's the bit that I love. I mean, just even saying it now it gives me a shiver. It's like something in church, really. It's it's a very, it's like a grand statement of why we're there, and of how serious it is, and of that it's the society itself which is going to make a judgment of you. I guess I was going to ask you what makes a good story, but what cases attract you? I'm most interested in cases where. A person is accused of having done something that seemed out of character. I'm I'm not interested in um, gang stories and I'm not interested in uh, serial killers or that kind of story. I'm I'm very interested in in stories about somebody who's um, under the pressure, the, the unbearable pressure of their life circumstances, that their foot's gone through the floor. You know, they've gone into that other realm where most of us don't go to, which is where you do some, something absolutely dreadful that you would never have thought yourself capable of doing and suddenly you've done it and you're out the other side and then you've got to answer for it. Usually um, I would read about something in the paper and I would think, what sort of man would beat a two-year-old child to death? Wonder what he looks like. And then I'd hop on my bike and ride down to the court just to have a look at the person. And then I'd sit down and, and I'd think, I think I'll stick around for a while. And the very first piece I ever wrote about a trial was about a guy who, the little boy who died was called Daniel Valerio, and this would have been in the mid-90s. And he was a little a two-year-old boy whose mother's boyfriend had bashed him to death. And uh, I went down to have a look at that and I wrote about that for Time magazine. This article resulted in the first of Helen Garner's two Walkley Awards. I learned a lot from that trial too. I, I learned how how slowly evidence can be laid out 
and how it just gets darker and worse and more horrendous. Court reporters have to be familiar with the rules around what can and can't be published. These rules are predominantly there to maintain the presumption of innocence and protect a fair trial. Peter Gregory again. The golden rule is, in a jury trial, is to report what's said in front of a jury. And my perception is, is that judges are concerned that juries do make their decisions based on what's put in front of them in court and not on what's from outside. So mentioning something like an accused person's previous convictions is the exact thing you don't do because it would be feared there's a tendency for someone to say, well, if he's done it before, clearly he's going to have done it again and it may affect um, a verdict. And a quick note, in episode six of Gertie's Law, the episode on juries, there's a longer discussion on what juries can and can't have access to. The issue which causes most controversy is suppression orders. A suppression order is when a judge prohibits the publication of certain information about a case. The challenge with suppression orders is finding that balance between a transparent justice system on the one hand and protecting the privacy of victims and witnesses and preserving a fair trial on the other. We'll hear what journalists think about suppression orders shortly, but first, why are they used? Chief Justice Anne Ferguson. Essentially, they're protecting the justice system. So at the heart of every case is that the person who's on trial, particularly in a criminal uh, case, has a fair trial. So suppression orders are really focusing on ensuring that the, the issues are decided on the evidence that's before the court. It's not influenced by other factors external to what the evidence is in the court. So there is that Um, tension of the balance between people's right to know and a fair trial and I think that when the two clash fair trial has to win out and that's essential and if you put yourself in the position of the accused person what would you want? You want a fair trial. Who does it matter to? It matters to the accused essentially. They're the ones that are going to be locked up. According to the Open Courts Act 2013 suppression orders can be made if they are necessary to A. Prevent a real and substantial risk of prejudice to the proper administration of justice that cannot be prevented by other reasonably available means. B. Prevent prejudice to the interests of the Commonwealth or a state or territory in relation to national or international security. C. Protect the safety of any person. D. Avoid causing undue distress or embarrassment to a complainant or witness in any criminal proceeding involving a sexual offence or a family violence offence. And E. Avoid causing undue distress or embarrassment to a child who is a witness in any criminal proceeding. One of the most memorable examples of a suppression order from the Supreme Court was in 2008, during what was known as Melbourne's Gangland Wars. Former criminal judge, Betty King. Well, I'd banned underbelly and that caused what I could only describe as the greatest sensation I've ever seen. I I was amazed at the overreaction to it. It was, after all, a television show and it could have been shown a bit later, but it just seemed to blow the entire mind of the population. And then... Not long after that, I had to ban another television show. So when I was trying to explain to the jury what I was doing, 
I, I was just being a bit flippant and trying to make them feel relaxed. And I said, you know me, I'm the queen of banning things. And so they all laughed and I then went into my explanation about what I'd done and why I'd done it to them and they understood. But the only thing the media liked out of all of that explanation was the line, queen of banning things. Just to take you, take you back to the underbelly, why, why did you ban it? Because um, I think the best description I can give is I had to watch it overnight. I had another trial coming up, which was the trial of um, a fellow called Gooses who was up for the Brunswick Club murder, that is the murder of um, Moran Senior, Lewis Moran. And I was told that it depicted this really well. So... The Crown came along and said, look, we we really are a bit concerned about this because the trial was about six weeks away. So I took it home that night. This was the Monday because they wouldn't give it to us. They were very reluctant to hand it over. So I took it home that night and watched it overnight. And it was about episode five. And I turned to my tip staff and I said, I didn't know that happened. That's how realistic it was. And... What would have happened, Would I would have had a jury just watching this on, I think it was going to be a Monday night, and then hearing the evidence possibly the next day, which confirmed what was in there. So whatever they saw in Underbelly would have just been reinforced by the evidence and made it would have made it very difficult for Gooses to get a fair trial because it was very pro the police doing it correctly and where the hero, they were the heroes... And, and so it just reinforced the police view. And all they needed to do was wait a couple of months and they could have shown it. But um, I had, when I hit episode five and did, made that comment, I thought, oh, there's no choice about this. It was so accurate. It was such um, a winner of a show. It really was. It was accurate. It was current. It was of the time. And people were quite fascinated by it. And I don't know how you'd ever remove that image they had of who the killers were that shot Lewis Moran. It was all there. <laughs> they And just would have been reinforced by the evidence, as I said. So they would have had a very good argument for this being put off and off and off. And the longer you put a trial off, the more unfair it becomes generally because people can't keep going back so far. It's interesting... Because one of the reasons it was banned, or you banned it, was because it was so good. Yes. Oh, I, I think I said it at the time. It was so, it was so good. It was accurate to an, a frightening degree, and I couldn't work it out until um, I think it was the last. There were two episodes in it. There were a bit of a giveaway. One, there was a scene outside the police station where they just when they form the task force and they take a photo group photo and I looked at it a number of times back and forth and it appeared to me to have a number of the actual Piranha Police Force members in the photo and then in the shot when they arrest Carl and walking over the hill in the background I could see the Piranha Police and I thought that's why it's so accurate (laughs) I think they had everything I had and then some But while suppression orders are there to protect a trial, 
they undoubtedly make it more difficult for a journalist, whose job it is to accurately relay what happens in court to the public. ABC reporter Karen Percy. They're not always bad. I know as a journalist I'm probably not supposed to say that, but they're not all bad, I get that. But um, they do make it difficult for me to do my job, especially in the context of um, a split trial um, if and, and that's happening more and more is that you know two three people might have been charged with a, the same crime but they split the trials that makes it really difficult because contemporaneous coverage of a trial is crucial while it's happening you're witnessing it you've got an understanding you know what you're going to report you know what's important if you've got any concerns queries you can follow up with the prosecution follow up with the defense lawyers even the judge's associate you can you know claim clarify anything that you don't understand or you're not sure of. If you're reporting later because of a suppression, going back through transcripts, days and days or weeks of weeks of transcripts is really problematic. It's very easy to miss something. There are actually, I think, likely to be fewer mistakes, fewer problems with contemporaneous reporting than the other way around. The proposition could be that Your Honour could make such an order. Um, Recently, uh, Justice Bell was asked to make a ruling on a suppression order. Today, Mr Burke, <laughs> I, think you, I think you need to appreciate the, the gravity of um, the open court principle. Yes. Um, you know, this is a, a very big deal. So let's... Uh, let's however, uh, in circumstances, as I've ordered in other cases, uh, where necessary because the statutory criteria are satisfied, I'll close a court or... Make a suppression order as the case may be. Make the application so that I can get some uh, understanding of the circumstances and what it is that ag- agitates you. Yes, Your Honour. So the two applications that I am making, Your Honour, are for a uh, proceeding suppression order yes. and a closed court order. Yes. So what sort of things do you have to consider when you get a request for a suppression order? Well, the first thing we have to consider is whether notice has been given to media organisations because that's one of the safeguards in the Act. The The main thing we have to consider is the very strong test in the Act, which is whether uh, it is necessary, not just desirable, but necessary, to uh, make an order to prevent a, a real and substantial risk to the administration of justice. Uh, and there's no other way to address that risk than to make an order. Uh, the next thing we have to have to consider is uh, the the purpose of the order, uh, just why why it is necessary, and we need to confine the uh, order to that purpose. Uh, then we we have to specify the order with clarity and make sure it goes for no longer than is necessary. What's the difference between a pseudonym order and a suppression order? A pseudonym order is a very useful way of dealing with a specific issue, which is the identity of a party. Now, it may be that uh, the party is a, is a child. Uh, it may be that the, uh, the party is a woman who's been a victim of serious sexual assault, perhaps rape, or the, the party may, for other reasons, uh, may have very legitimate grounds for not wanting their identity uh, to be disclosed in court proceedings. Uh, the court, uh, in that kind of situation, again, according to strict tests, uh, has the capacity to to order that that person be referred to only by, for example, the name PQR. Uh, in other words, uh, a string of letters or, or a real pseudonym, John or Jane Doe. The order is not a suppression order because it, it does not 
prevent information about the proceeding uh, from being published. And that's why a pseudonym order can be really useful, because it does not prevent information about the proceeding from being published, but it does prevent the name being published and therefore the identity of the person being linked with the proceeding itself. Give me an example of where a pseudonym order or suppression order was essential. Well, a pseudonym order or a suppression order is essential where, for example, you might have an undercover police officer, uh, as in cases uh, that I've heard, who goes into a prison cell in order to have a conversation uh, undercover with a suspect uh, and the suspect confesses. This happens in, um, in case of very serious crime. If the identity of that police officer uh, were to be revealed, then the, then the police officer would be uh, subject to a risk of death. And so I couldn't emphasise enough the importance of a pseudonym order in that kind of situation, as much as I emphasise uh, the importance of open justice and free communication of information uh, in others. In 2013, the Victorian Government passed the Open Courts Act, with a further review in 2017. What's your understanding of the Open Courts Act? What's it designed to do? Uh, It's designed to give effect to uh, the fundamental principle of open justice and free uh, communication of information, uh, which is uh, a principle that has been been applied by the courts traditionally over hundreds of years and is fundamental to the role of courts in democracy. It's also a a human right of of great importance uh, recognised in our Charter of Human Rights. Why is it a human right? It's a human right because we can't be truly free uh, unless we can communicate information. Uh, We can't be truly free unless we can express ideas. We can't be truly free if we can't receive information from others and impart information from others. So the, the human right of freedom of expression and to obtain, to seek, to give information is about that which makes us human. I cannot emphasise strongly enough uh, the importance of uh, the role of media in maintaining public confidence in the rule of law. Despite all the reporters here every day, we don't hear directly from judges. They never talk about cases and despite the important decisions they make, are rarely seen. Chief Justice Anne Ferguson again. With judges, we don't hear from them much. No, you don't very often hear from them. Why is that? I think that for a long time, uh, judges felt that uh, their judgments had to speak totally for them. And there's a good reason why you only want the judgment. How would you feel if you came to court and the judge tells you that you've won the case for these three reasons and then you go away or you've lost the case for three reasons, perhaps more importantly, and then you go away from the courtroom and you hear the judge talking about the case and they're giving different reasons or they're elaborating on what they've said. So you're trying to confine the reasoning for the decision that's been reached. And there's another important reason why they don't talk about specific cases and that's because we have an appeal system. So the fact that a judge of this court might make a decision, it might be going from our trial division up to the Court of Appeal. You don't want to have a whole lot of commentary around the original decision. In my time, there was an absolute rule that you did not explain anything, except in the courtroom. There was no comment to be made by any judge about any sentence, conviction, acquittal, role of the judge, position of the judge at all. 
retired criminal judge Betty King. The view was the Attorney-General was the spokesperson who would come in and protect judges and make any comment. And so as judges, we never made a comment to anyone. Principal judge in the Common Law Division, Justice Dixon. Judges are reluctant to speak about the cases that they have been involved in while they are still serving judges because we take the view that our reasons as to why we made decisions are expressed, often in great detail, uh, in the reasons that we give, uh, which are all available um, on the internet. You don't see the judge writing into the newspaper saying, look, the reason why that article is completely misleading is it doesn't understand the following things about what occurred and explaining it. Um, we don't engage in that, that form of debate. One of the main differences now when it comes to reporting the courts is that anyone can do it. The internet has given rise to the citizen journalist, someone with the curiosity, a blog or social media profile, but not the training. Andrea Petrie is a former court reporter and is now researching the effect of social media on the courts. Uh, there are huge differences with what you can see online as opposed to what's reported in the, the mainstream media. I guess the most important is the fact that those reporting cases and trials in the media have some form of legal training. So they're aware of what can and can't be reported. They know that they're not allowed to report someone's prior convictions from the moment they've been charged. Uh, whereas these days, with the advent of the internet and blogs, you know, social media in general, anyone can publish any information online. So we've got all these citizen journalists, if you like, out there who might think they're doing a great job keeping their friends and family and the, the wider community up to date, yet they're reporting and publishing information that it may not have been before the jury. It may have been, for instance, uh, something said during argument when the jury's out of the room. It might be something that's entirely prejudicial and therefore hampers an accused right to a fair trial. So this has created huge problems for the justice system because citizen journalists don't have the training. They don't know what can and can't be reported. So regardless of how well-intentioned someone might be, their actions can actually jeopardise a trial. It can and does lead to uh, juries being discharged and you know, trials being aborted all over the world, which of course comes at huge expense to the public. I remember this the case that got me interested in this topic. The judge in question mentioned that this person who had commented on Facebook um, had cost the Victorian community in excess of $50,000. So you can imagine if you've got a a five-week trial, you're nearing the end of the trial and then it's brought to the judge's attention that somebody uh, in the public gallery has published information that is not meant to have been published, then it costs an absolute fortune. It was a big deal at the time, and I think probably because it was a pretty awful murder as well. So it was a case that would have had prominence anyway. In 1995, a TV camera was invited for the very first time into the Supreme Court. 
It was the case of Nathan Avent, who murdered a 10-year-old boy with an axe and sexually assaulted the boy's mother. Peter Gregory was working as a reporter for The Age newspaper at the time. It's like anything, you know, when someone does something new, there's a lot of concern, will this work, how will this go? And one of the lawyers in the case suggested they were concerned about how it would be regarded by someone in the front bar of a particular hotel. And I know the age sent someone along to the front bar of that particular hotel when the broadcast was made just to see what the reaction was. So, yeah, at the time it was a big deal. The issue of TV cameras inside a court was hotly debated. Even the then Victorian Premier, Jeff Kennett, weighed in and was quoted as saying, it threatens the independence of the judiciary rather than preserves its independence. It was Justice Teague who permitted a camera into his court for the sentence of Nathan Avent. But there were conditions. Sentence to be filmed by one camera. Camera to record Justice Teague at the bench as he delivers sentence. Judge will edit videotape before it is given to TV stations. Broadcast of judge's sentencing remarks must be at least two minutes long. Material can only be used in news programs, current affairs not included. The ABC said these conditions were too onerous and did not use the footage. Basically, they could not accept any outside influence when it came to shaping the content of their news. But other networks did televise the sentence. Avent was sentenced to life with a non-parole period of 25 years. This sentence was then appealed, and eight reasons were given for that appeal. Number two was... In exercising his direction to allow the sentencing of the applicant to be televised, the learned sentencing judge fell into error by imposing a sentence which was excessively harsh and not in accordance with legal principles of sentencing. While the appeal did result in a reduced sentence, the appeal court did not accept the presence of TV cameras as relevant. Here's an actor reading from the appeal court's judgment, which was handed down on the 22nd of November, 1995. After giving this application due consideration, I agree with the other members of the court that it is necessary to address only ground one. As to the other grounds, none raises, as has been suggested in some sections of the media, the question of the future televising of court proceedings in Victoria. When you think of it now... It's done routinely, and I think uh, Justice Michael Kirby at the time made a similar type of a point that, yes, these types of cases, this sort of televised court, causes a big fuss, but in time we'll see this as relatively commonplace, and he was right. In previous episodes, we've talked about vicarious trauma and the effect it can have on judges and juries sitting through very violent and disturbing material day in, day out. Same goes for journalists. Karen Percy again. It's affected me a number of times. Um, I recall during the Gargasoulis victim impact statements, you know, there were 40-plus victim impact statements, all as heart-wrenching as the next. And, you know, in that room that day... As we were watching in an anteroom, a, a video, most of the reporters, and, you know, there were a lot of glum faces. That was a tough one. Gargasoulis killed six people and seriously injured 27 people when he drove his car through pedestrians in Melbourne's Burke Street Mall in 2017. He was sentenced to life in prison with a non-parole period of 46 years. And uh, I have... My people, my people, my peers that I go to and kind of, you know, very often have a little cry and kind of have a little, oh, this is what was said, this is what was done. And usually that's enough to at least get me 
the next stage, which is to write the next story. And part of being an ABC journalist and filing across platforms is this. You do it for radio, do it for online, you do it for TV, and that deeply embeds a story because you are going over it again and again and again and maybe you're doing a live cross for the news channel and maybe you're doing a live cross for local radio so it gets embedded very very deeply these days so that can be tough Um, but understanding what trauma can do to you is really important that it will affect your mood that it might affect your sleeping it might affect your eating you might be um, grouchy and a whole lot of things And you might not. So sometimes you have to step away and not do courts for a while, um, which I think is a healthy thing to do, is to step away every now and again. Helen Garner immersed herself in a trial which took seven years to conclude, for her book, The House of Grief. It was the case of Robert Farquharson, who drove his car into a dam, killing his three children. There was a trial, then an appeal, a second trial, another appeal, and then an attempt to go to the High Court. It was uh, awful. Uh, I mean, just awful. And also, a trial like that, which is about the murder of children, is um, you get filled up with the sort of poison of it. And I used to go home at the end of the day and I had three little grandchildren that I lived next door to, so I'm with them a lot. And I, I had this awful, creepy feeling that I was going to contaminate them when I got home with what I'd been hearing in the court. And, and uh, they'd run up and want to sit on my knee and cuddle me and sit and watch TV. And oh, I said this awful... It was kind of a crazy feeling. It makes you a bit crazy sitting through those long ones. It was so miserable that I thought, I just can't go on. I can't, can't keep going with this. And I thought, in between, I don't know which of the hearings it was between, but I just thought I can't stand this because obviously I couldn't start writing it for final form of it until it was over so I thought oh, I've had this I haven't got the strength to go on so I'll, I'll just stop I, I packed everything up and I put it in folders and stacked it up and cleared the decks I thought right that's it I'm not writing a book about Farquhar's and for three days I was so happy <laughs> I was skipping through the daisies and and then I don't know the, this darkening feeling came over me and I thought I'm never going to be able to get this out of my head unless I write about it and I've gone, I'm, I've gone in so far that the only way out is through. So I had to keep going. And, and afterwards, I was a real mess. That's another thing about daily journalists that I've felt. I, I feel that the, I think they've, they're just much more sort of hard-boiled than I was back then. I mean, they had a lot more experience. And they'd had to um, write about one case and bang, come back the next day and, and be ready to write about a different one, whereas I was soaked in this one for seven years. I mean, it's, there's some terrible destructive force in those stories. And in a sense, the court is what enables you to bear it, the formality of the proceedings. Well, I used to feel sorry for the daily journalists because they had to, they had to come up with something at the, at the end of every day that was going to make sense to someone who didn't know the whole story. And I, I would watch the journalists rushing out at the end of the day and rushing out to file. And I'd think, oh, thank God, it's not me because I've got time to think about it. I can go and have a drink in a bar and talk to a friend and, and, and see what they think. Um, so it's great luxury not to be um, a daily journalist like that. Although at the, by the same token, I envied them terrifically because they were they're in a gang. I mean, it's very lonely working by yourself. 
But um, they had that little room that they used to retire to and sometimes they'd say, oh, come into the room when it was cold and at break and I'd go in there. But they were all so busy on the computers and I just used to sit there sadly like someone's grandmother. (laughs) There's a perception that reporters and judges rarely see eye to eye. In a recent review of the Open Courts Act, a joint submission from various media organisations stated, judicial officers had a hostile and distrustful attitude towards some media organisations. So to get a sense of what this relationship is really like, we've assembled a panel consisting of four Supreme Court judges and four working court reporters. We're pretty excited about this because as far as we know, it hasn't been done before. Look out for part two of this episode, which we'll release later this week. Gertie's Law is produced by the Supreme Court of Victoria. And a special thanks this episode to our composer Barney McCall for all the extra news treatment of the much-loved Gertie's Law theme. And thanks so much for all your comments and everything you've been saying about Gertie's Law. If you can, please leave ratings and reviews. We'd love to know what you think, and it helps others to find this podcast. 